0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. When nine Vietnamese women arrived at Virginia Sudbury's law office in American Samoa, she wasn't sure she would take the case. She ended up as lead plaintiff attorney in a precedent-setting case, which drew international attention to issues of involuntary servitude and human trafficking in far-flung U.S. territories. Virginia Sudbury now lives in Utah and is author of a new book, Sweatshops in Paradise, A True Story of Slavery in Modern America. She writes that trafficking in people is a continuing, hateful, and enticingly lucrative endeavor. It occurs all over the world. It's alive in our fields and in our cities and possibly where we get a pedicure. It happened in this story in 2000 in an American territory. We're joined now by Virginia Sudbury. Welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you, Mr. Tom. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Uh, First of all, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, Before you got out to American uh, Samoa, you... uh, uh, graduated from Illinois State University, went to DePaul uh, for law school, but then didn't practice law.
1: No, no, I, I really didn't like lawyers at that point. I, I, you know, they were kind of like the color orange, you know, largely annoying, but there were some nice shades. <laughs> and I had this great education and needed something to do with it and moved to California and worked in a uh, recruiting was vice president of a recruiting firm in Beverly Hills for about about seven years. At
0: some point met your husband, Rob.
1: I did. I met my husband Rob on a uh, kind of an odd situation, and we fell madly in love and got married five weeks after our first date, and uh, and are still married after thirty years. Well, <laughs> cool. uh, very good.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you're you're with this, this management uh, legal consulting firm, but but. Um... Uh, then you and your husband decide to go to uh, Baja, California?
1: Yeah. Robbie decided that um, we lived by the ocean. We lived in Venice Beach, California, and decided we should uh, buy a boat. We did. We sailed her down. Her name was Scout, a wonderful boat. And we sailed her down to the Sea of Cortez and lived there for about six years, um, obviously not practicing law doing various things, delivering boats, um, helping people with, um, you know, marine things and what have you, and making weird bearded jewelry. It was a it was a strange and uh, wonderful time.
0: <laughs> that, that's a long way from law school.
1: It was a <laughs> lot. Hey, I was finding the farthest place away from <laughs> law school as I could at that yeah. point. So.
0: <laughs> and you're living on the boat.
1: We're living on the boat. She's 25 and a half feet long, or 24 and a half feet long. Um, uh, we lived on her for 10 years. So we're... we're Rob and I are very close.
0: And... Uh, but then... I don't know if this was a goal of, uh, of of each of you. You and your husband, you you wanted to do some long range sailing, so you, yeah. you you set a plan.
1: We did. I, you know, the ocean just calls, and we both wanted to do a long passage. That you know, Scout was built for it. She was little, but she was very very seaworthy and um, suited to long range open ocean sailing. So we looked up where we could go, and you know where we, when we should do it, and found American Samoa, which is. Um, about 350 miles maybe north of um, Fiji. It's almost—it's about 5,000 miles away from Baja, California, from the west coast. And so we sailed through French Polynesia and um, eventually, you know, wended our way down to American Samoa and um, ended up there in 1990. I think it was 1995, later in 1995.
0: You chose American Samoa because uh, you could work
1: We there. could work. Right exactly' an american want, territory i 'm sorry French Polynesia um, was wonderful, and we probably would have stayed there, but you had to be French or Marquesan, and we were neither and <clears throat> we couldn 't afford to stay there and they we couldn 't get a job so we decided we'll we 'll go for where we can do something
0: and uh, ironically uh, the you 're on a collision course with a Mr. Lee <laughs> and the desa Garment factory. He he located his factory in American Samoa so that he could put "Made in America" on his on his label.
1: Exactly. Who the heck knew that there was even that possibility? And in fact, it's it's noteworthy that he would. Oh, he was just not. A, he was just a bad man. But he he, when he did the recruiting initially back in Vietnam, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. Um, he would the contracts he had would have the garments flown over to American Samoa, um. Completed. Ultimate, essentially almost completed, but except for like a cuff or a hem or a label. And then they would sew those little bits on and then slap that label on, and they'd come to stores in, here in Salt Lake, and we all think we're buying made-in-America products.
0: Hmm. And We'll get into maybe the, the broader problem. You you write yeah. in, your, in your book that um, uh, slavery... Uh, occurs all over the world. It, uh, it's in our fields, our cities, and probably where we get a pedicure.
1: Yeah, and I realized that, that after I wrote that, I've had I've had I'm 55. I've had three pedicures in my entire life. Okay, but I, <laughs> I realized that probably sounded a little elitist. But but it's just that base. And and a, if you go to a restaurant, I know I I'll, I'll see uh, restaurants I'll frequent all seem to be related, and then I'll see the workers leave after their shifts, and they'll all go to the same little house behind the restaurant and I you know I just it's all I can do not to run up and say do you have your own passport are you here against your will Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I I truly think it's now invisible to us because it gives us such a benefit
0: and, and that's another point you make. It's not. Uh, it's not like slavery in, in old times. Uh, it, it's it's invisible. Puts on a puts on a nice face.
1: It does, and it puts on a face that I want to see because I don't want to pay forty dollars for a plate of sushi. You know, I don't. I want to pay it as cheap as I can, and that's what we do. And it, that's what makes it so darn enticing.
0: Mm. So you uh, sail across the ocean. By the way, you have some uh, very poetic passages in your in your book about. Uh-huh. And one thing I hadn't thought about: uh, if you're out on the ocean, just the two of you, um, one has to be at at watch at all times.
1: Yes, and that was the that was the hardest thing because it took us 39 days for the biggest passage, the passage from Baja to um, Nuku Hiva in the Marquesas. And you, you, somebody ha- we were littler than practically everything out there, except for maybe a you know seagull. And so somebody always had to be, always had to be out on watch. Um, we were in shipping lanes. they were big ships, and obviously they could move faster than us, and they didn't always see us because we were tiny. Um, I also have my ham radio license. I'm an extra, so I was able to actually we were able to talk to Robbie's parents and my mom every day when we were out at sea. Mm. I mean, how cool yeah. was that yeah, that so. would
0: help yeah. <laughs> so very beautiful, but uh, you'd be aware of danger around you in you know, a small boat
1: just, yeah it's it was it was people have said ask me what was the passage like, and I say, pick an adjective you know it was every single thing that you can imagine at some point in the world, but largely it was just wondrous it was it was just tranquil and away from everything and the bad weather was you know it turned my hair gray but that was that was that was the payoff for the tranquility.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> That's what turned your hair gray. Okay. Yes. Uh one of the t- many things <laughs> Among many things. Uh Virginia Sudbury is my guest. Uh, she is uh, now living in Utah. Uh we're we're going to tell the story uh, of what happened to her and uh, Vietnamese workers at a, uh, a Korean owned uh, Garment Factory. The uh, book is Sweatshops in Paradise, A True Story of Slavery in Modern America. This happened in American Samoa, American Territory. That's an important part of the story. And uh, you're welcome to join the conversation here if you'd like with a question or comment, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Ms. Sudbury, we did get an email uh, yesterday. Which had to do with my pronunciation of I thought it was pago pago. <laughs> uh, I looked it up as pago pago or pango pango. I, what, what's the what's the official pronunciation of where you were living?
1: It's pango pango. Okay. Uh, Samoans put an ing, an n like an, an ng sound before the letter g, so it, so it, it's pango like. Um, Pong, but with an O, like so, Pongo, Pongo, which is why I always call her Lady Nga instead of Lady Gaga.
0: <laughs> right, uh, An important character in the in, in the person in the book. Uh, oh, so right. <laughs> so you you ended up in Pongo, Pongo, um, and uh, what did you do at first?
1: I worked for a newspaper. I um, was editor of a newspaper. There was two newspapers, the Samoa News and the Samoa Journal. I worked for the Samoa Journal for, um, oh, I don't know, probably four or five months when I was there, both Robbie and I did.
0: Um, and eventually ended up using your law degree.
1: I did. I re- we weren't really making it on my $200 a week, and um, Rob reminded me that I, I did, in fact, have this degree, and I, I might, in fact, want to see what that was all about. So I Went in and interviewed with the public defender's office, and they hired me. And um, you know, the next day, gave me a stack of files and patted me on the head and sent me off to court. And that was that. So it was uh, right into the deep end. And I decided that, you know, gosh, maybe lawyers weren't that bad. And practicing was was fun. Court was fun. It uh, was. So go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Oh no, no. Uh, uh, I want to have you read a passage from the book. This is uh, page three.
1: Okay. Got your, got your book with you. Uh, by
0: the way, to set this up, your. Um, your assistant Grace. Uh, that, that's where this. I'll this, uh, have you tell me about Grace and then your other, your investigator, uh, okay. Petita, oh,
1: Petita, the dear Petita. So did you want me to start? Uh,
0: yes, uh, starting with Grace Buzzed, and then okay. over the page to the end of the dialogue there.
1: Okay, I can do that. Uh, Grace Buzzed. Your eight o'clocks are here, Virginia. I looked at my calendar. This appointment was to be with a group of Vietnamese women who were brought from Vietnam to labor in the at the Daiwusa garment factory in the village of Tafuna. I believe they had a wage claim. Grace escorted them into my office. There were nine of them. They were small women and looked even smaller to me then as I was used to a somewhat larger local norm. They smiled shyly at me and held their hats and parasols in their hands. I had one lopsided black futon couch in my office, and they all sat on it. They all fit. They had dark, straight hair and extraordinarily bright eyes. They were a bit anxious, but nonetheless looked at me directly. I felt an unspoken but palpable exchange of burdens. Finally, one of the women spoke. I am Vu T. Kim Zung. You know. I have some English. She pronounced her calling name Zung. She introduced the other women. I asked her where she and the other women lived. At Daiwusa Compound, except for me. Where do you live? At Ma and Pa Jones. Where did you live before Daiwusa? Vietnam. Where are your families? Vietnam. How much are you paid by Daiwusa? You know, no money, many months, no money.
0: That was the problem. Um, That's and what I
1: thought was the problem.
0: <laughs> that yes, and then it became much larger than that. In fact, it became an international uh, case. Yeah. Uh, so uh, these these women that, that set up the problem for me. They, they they and this this happens all over the world, doesn't it? To to, to this yeah. very day.
1: It does happen to this very day. In fact, um, when, when they came to American Small, and this is the most fascinating part for me. Um, It wasn't just like they, they tried to get a visa and come over and get a job. They were actually recruited by two companies that are, were parts, are parts of the Vietnamese government. The first one was called International Manpower Supply, and the second is called Tourism Company 12. And they would recruit young women from Vietnam at the behest of an owner, for instance, in this case, Kil Suli, and they would have them pony up between four and $7,000 a piece. And remember, this is at a time when the daily wage in Vietnam was about 75 cents a day. So their families would mass money and, and uh, sell houses and do what they could to, to bank their money on this one worker going to America, because America, has, the streets are paved with gold, and we all are rich here. Mm. So they would do these exorbitant, extravagant efforts to get somebody signed up for this. So they would sign up workers, and these were women that were very well schooled. One was an engineer. I know most of them had degrees of some kind, and they were hired. They had to do a little sewing test, and then cough up the four to seven grand, and they were hired. And they would be sent to far-flung areas of the world to labor. Many were sent to Africa. This is a very, very, very common thing in um, in Asia right now, sending workers out.
0: And so they would arrive, and I think the the employer or the uh, or the the manpower agency would would keep their documents right
1: yes they would they would in fact when the one of the groups was flying, they would fly them over in groups, and that's in fact how we had the lawsuit organized eventually because we had about three hundred plaintiffs, and they were like m- terms like manpower group one or you know whenever they you know arrived in this in the territory, but they would arrive um the, the Kilsu Lee and his minions would take away their passports. They were put right in the compound, and the compound uh, it was surrounded by barbed wire. It was—it it looked for all the world like a prison. And it was had the house the factory, you know, Kilsu Lee's offices and his little complex, and then the bar- There were literally barracks for the workers. So they were here. You go. This is where you're going to come live. When one of the things um, I, I didn't mention in the book, which was just, <laughs> just hideous to me. One of the things they were promised was a full-sized Olympic swimming pool right there Hmm. on the grounds, And they would, I mean, they really played this up to be just gorgeous. Well, the pool was there, but the pool was filled with toads. Hmm. And that is just in my mind, when I think about those barracks, there's like six inches, I'm not exaggerating, six inches of toads in the bottom of this giant pool. And there's your pool. Hmm.
0: (laughs) So it's it's an effective recruiting pitch, but yes. you you have to put up a lot of money up front, yes, and uh, mortgage the house, and a lot of relatives go into debt to to help you get there uh, for the hoped for payoff. When you arrive, your documents are taken. You're you're essentially stuck.
1: You're, you're exactly stuck. In fact, when they were flying over uh, on the plane, uh, the then. Attorney General, Malata, I'm sorry, he may not have been Attorney General at that point, but he was eventually. His name is Malatasi Tongafau. He's now he's now no longer with us. He um, gave them all new contracts on the plane, flying over the Pacific Ocean, and said, you need to sign these. And it, it, it was just, it was so inequitable. The power versus, you know, it, it, the, the power inequity that existed from the time those ladies got on the plane was just just incredible mm-hmm. to me.
0: And then if you complain... Uh, you, you're threatened with deportation, a very real threat, because okay. the American Samoan government uh, will back that up.
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, Zoom, um, Zoom, and three other of her workers did complain in early 1999. They got tossed in the pokey in, in the Tafuna Correctional Facility, which was the prison, um, eventually, they got out another lawyer. There, Barry Rose and Jennifer Jonasson, helped them. They were they were great. And then and then Zoom was largely involved in, in obviously in our case later that year. But um, it, it was deportation. It was it was control employment control by deportation. It worked perfectly. Who the heck was going to stand up for these women? Nobody was, and the American Samoan government uh, was completely complacent in this.
0: And I suppose from the government's point of view, this is a factory, this is providing jobs. What, what is their interest here?
1: Well, their interest, I think, was basically fi- financial. Um, they employed, the Daiwusa Garment Factory did employ about 30 Samoan workers, and they worked in the packing side. They didn't sew, but they, they did have that very small, em- you know, local employment base. Um, I think the benefit was that, you know, well, and I was never able able to prove this, but there was a lot of money that went missing, a lot of money that came into the factory, and we don't know where it went. And I suspect it went to Kilsu Lee, and I suspect it went to the American Samoan government, but I've not been able to prove that. Mm-hmm.
0: We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll talk about these workers and the, the, these nine women who uh, who showed up in Virginia Sudbury's office, the ensuing case that uh, went went forward. And uh, talk about courage. Uh, Virginia Sunbury has, uh, at the beginning of the book, a a quote from uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. It must have taken incredible courage for these, these women to come forward. Back after the break.
1: On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid.
0: We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me, and as long as it's not moving around.
1: I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's
0: most outstanding young musicians on From the Top, each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9. On Utah Public Radio. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual,
1: and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience.
0: Waste not. Don't use running water to thaw food. Defrost food in the refrigerator
1: for water efficiency and food safety. Another water efficiency tip, only run your washing machine and dishwasher with full loads.
0: Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org publicworks. You're listening to Access You Time. Tom Williams, our guest for the hour's is Virginia Sudbury. When nine Vietnamese women arrived at her office in Pongo Pongo, American Samoa, she wasn't sure she'd take the case. She did, and ended up as lead plaintiff attorney in a Preston setting case that drew international attention to issues of involuntary servitude and human trafficking. And uh, Virginia Sudbury now lives in Utah, and she's author of a new book, Sweatshops in Paradise, A True Story of Slavery in Modern America. The number to call if you'd like to join the program is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us on uh, by email at upraxis at gmail dot com. Upraxis at gmail dot com. Uh, Virginia Sudbury at, at one point, uh, uh, these women are, are promised they have to pay thousands of dollars up front for the privilege of going to American Samoa to, to work. I uh, I think the promise was $408 a month and you yeah. could get $1000 in overtime that was possible and they were paid one time $100 and then nothing is that what happened
1: Yeah they they received very sporadic payments they were never they never received $408 and it was just it was a constant fight with Kilsue Lee because he kept taking things out like room and board that were clearly not to be taken out. No one would get any overtime. Um, At at one point, I remember um, he did pay them. He made a big show of setting up tables and handing out checks, and Quinn, one of our clients, got a check for, like, minus $4.81. And I remember thinking that this is just – this cannot be. This. This is just not real. But no, he never paid them what they were supposed to. He. Um, he. He just simply refused to.
0: And at one point, the, the 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 ladies kind of talking separately at their different tables got together, and uh, I, I don't know if this was an official strike, but the, I think the word strike was uttered. And and Mr. Lee storms into the room. Maybe we could tell that story.
1: Yeah, that was in April of 1999, and um, Zoom our our. Um, what would end up to be our, our translator and three other women did decide that they, because people were malnourished they were fainting they were um, they're they were not having their periods anymore they were wasting away so they said they needed more food they needed some money and they stood up and said they would strike and Kilsulu came in and had the Samoan police come in with him and tossed him in the correctional facility and that was that there was just absolutely no stepping back. So from April until December, when the nine ladies came to our office, there was, there was nothing for them. There was, they, and this is the curious thing. This is why Kilsu Lee chose or chose American Samoa so wisely. We had, um, obviously, Samoans there, um, Fijians, Tongans, um, Koreans, Chinese. I don't remember. There were some Japanese, but there was no Vietnamese. So if you were Vietnamese and were on that island and couldn't speak any of the other languages, you were screwed. Mm. You were, there was nobody you could even talk to about this. It was just horrendous.
0: So then how do you, how do you get the courage then to, to reach out to a lawyer to, to fight this? I
1: tell you, I do not know. Those ladies, I don't know where I, you know, you think maybe it's born of desperation or um, some passion for, you know, you know rightness correctness. Um, I don't know. I don't know where they found it, but they did. And so many of them, I realized. You know, I had nothing to lose. Basically, I mean, you know, theoretically, it w- I wasn't living this case. I was going. I was going to going to be fine. But they um, really, really withstood a lot of um, not only immediate social pressure by coming to our office, but back in Vietnam. And this, this time, is something I didn't understand and and still have a difficult time with. How egregious shaming one's family is in Vietnam. And these families had put together all this money. They had banked their, literally their hopes and dreams on this one representative that was going to go to the land that had the chances. And now they hear that this person is is speaking out against the company and is suing the very company that brought them over. And the letters from home were heart-wrenching. I mean, mothers were tearing their hair out, making asking their daughters, please stop it, stop it. You're shaming us. And then conversely, back in Vietnam, those families were then blackballed from getting jobs and getting connections because of the lawsuit. I had no idea.
0: So deportation is, is is a very big deal. If you're deported back, uh, you're essentially going back to a shamed family, and, and yes. it's very bad for your family and relatives.
1: It's it's very bad. And in fact, after we moved here back here to Robbie's from Utah when we moved here in uh, 2001, for years I would get emails from clients that had gone back to Vietnam. About 93 of them did, asking me if I knew anything about where they should sell their organs because they couldn't get any work. It's mm. Horrible, heartbreaking. Yeah.
0: Uh so and when these nine women brought the the case to you you know there's there's a dramatic moment in the book where you're deciding whether or not you're going to take the case but you're I think you're you're moved by the injustice of it aren't you and and this is you keep you keep repeating this is America this is America
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was getting extremely shrill as I as I am known to do but I was like no 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 this can't happen this can't happen. You know, I mean, I literally, I went to law school because of to kill a Mockingbird. And I do believe, you know, my parents taught me that if you, if you, you the only injustice, you, if you let it happen to you, you're sleeping on your rights. You need to exercise these rights that you have. And, um, I, I, I did, I did take it personally, I think. It probably because I was so early on in my legal career, but also because it was just so darn wrong. Um, it was so unjust. So, but I, but I, 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 literally, I thought we'd go to court a couple times, and that would be that, because yeah. I, I knew the American small government would back me up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not the case. We'll get into that story. Yeah. Uh, we do have an email. This is from uh, Steve in Beaver Dam, Arizona. He says, "How does Jack Abramoff fit into the story?"
1: <laughs> I don't know if Jack Abr- Abram. Abrahoff does or not I'm sure that if he was involved in any kind of the um, higher realms of the the sale as far as the garments but I have absolutely no idea how he does all right
0: and I don't either uh, Steve so <laughs> so you'll you'll have to email us back and if you know you can you can let us know yeah. uh, by the way the email is upraxis at gmail.com upraxis at gmail.com the phone number is one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five I guess for the hours Virginia Sudbury uh, now lives in Utah and uh, the story of uh, what happened in Samoa sweatshops in paradise is the book True story of slavery in modern America. Now, uh, Zung, you've talked about, she was part of the, yeah. one of those nine women. She was different. She didn't want to go back to Vietnam. She wanted to go to America.
1: She didn't want to go back, and she wanted to go to America. She um, was the first one. She was involved in this the early on so called, you know, the two minute strike back in April of 1999. She lived with two incredibly fabulous people. Dale and Adeline Jones, and Dale Jones was the former liaison with the um, Department of Interior, United States, and he had moved to um, Pongo years and years ago. Married Adeline, who was just this this regal, magnificent woman, and they took Zuni into their home. They taught her English. Um, she took English with another gentleman, um, Bill Hyman, who was another another person that worked tirelessly on behalf of these workers, and she. She became our translator, and it, it literally started with drawing pictures back and forth. It literally started with that, and she was so bright and and so full of um, just desire to move on with life that it was it, she was she was invaluable to our case.
0: So at one point, you uh, you they're worried, obviously, yeah. uh, is this going to work? You you draw a big picture of the United States and <laughs> a little picture of Vietnam. You keep pointing to it, saying, "This is America." So there, maybe on your part, maybe a little bit of naivety going into this a little (laughs) (laughs) there was pushback tell me a bit about the pushback not only from the factory from the factory owner but from the government
1: well there was a lot of pushback and i I truly didn't know because again right hovers above us all correct i mean justice the truth are right there for us all to see we just have to embrace it not so um when we started there was there was backlash from the the clients more based in fear because they didn't this was an extraordinary remedy. This was an extraordinary act to actually do something like put their name on a lawsuit. There was pushback from the factory, obviously, because they they at first they just ignored us. They weren't going to abide by any any kind of you know current laws or or even the contract that they had had the ladies sign. But then the weirdest part, and the part that I never really got, I think, is uh, is the I'll start as complacency, but um, you know, the anger of the government against what we were doing and I didn't realize the effect it was having on the government's perception of itself in the world when the article started coming out on the mainland and um, and this was reported on by Asia Pacific Radio since the beginning of the case it was also largely uh, report, reported widely in Hawaii but the the American Samoa government perceived it as being a um, a black eye to them, that they kept going on the news and in the paper saying, well, nothing happened. Nothing is going on at Daiwoosa. Nothing is going on. Virginia and Krista are making this whole thing up. And so we felt really, really isolated by the one last bastion of, again, that, that justice seeker. So that was probably one of the most, the more daunting parts.
0: You did get a, uh, a preliminary ruling that was in favor of you and an injunction.
1: We did. We got, we took that um, bad man, Kil Lee, to court from the time we filed in December, late December, I think we filed on Christmas Eve, I can't remember, 1999, and got the ladies, the nine were being deported at that point. I could not stop that Um, until the case ended, until I left the island in 2001. We had gone to court over 14 times with him on orders to show cause, on enforcing injunctions. We never lost a hearing. That is how egregious his behavior was, and he didn 't care. We would go back he would pull, he would act the fool he would you know incarcerate them he wouldn 't let the ladies out he wouldn 't feed them he wouldn 't pay them he would beat them up he bad things would happen i 'd go to court and i'd we 'd win, and things would go right back to the way they were before I mean, he was he was Teflon <laughs> uh,
0: part of that I guess he felt he had the support of the government
1: he did, and I remember one night um you know the ladies would call frequently, and they would call throughout the night. I mean, we there was 300 of them, and they were they a lot of them had cell phones. So um, we were the three of us were in constant contact with them. We went out one night. We were called out um, about 11 o'clock at night, and of course that the there's Samoan guards there, but there was also Samoan police, and Samoan police tended to be big, bigish, and um, I remember their big arms being folded, and me trying to forcibly. Get through the fence and poking them in their big fat stomachs and saying, "I'm their lawyer. I can go in there." <laughs> and them just, they're just shaking their heads like, "You're nuts, lady. Where are you?" <laughs> hmm.
0: I wonder <laughs> we, if you tell uh, us about the uh, the the named plaintiff in the in the case.
1: The named plaintiff is a woman named um, Nyinti Na, and um, Na was one of the first. She and Zoom were very close friends. And they were one of the first um, people that became involved and were the active ones in terms of filing the lawsuit. And when we first filed the lawsuit, we didn't file it as a class action. Again, remember, you know, I it, I could spell class action. You know, that's my extent of my knowledge of that at that time. um... Once they started coming to us, the workers started coming to us quietly and surreptitiously and saying, "Can I? Can you put my name on that?" We we applied for class action status. Krista did the research. She is brilliant. That that woman. And uh, we were we were certified as that status. So we needed somebody to to have the name. And uh, we talked to our ladies and um, asked if they had any input. And and nah, um volunteered. It was it, it, it was a bit time coming. She was very hesitant because she was now the face of the lawsuit. So she was very brave um, to have her name on there. Uh, her family, of course, knew she was the name plaintiff, but yet she persevered. She was just a the quiet sweet sweet woman that um had a very steely resolve mm. uh,
0: tragically, uh, this is in the middle of the book, so I'm not yeah. getting with it the ending um the, the, the two people two courageous women we've been talked about uh, um died
1: you know that, that was a horrible day i I remember Adeline called me and um and she said, you know, they were they went out to Sliding Rock and they went out with some people. And again, you go you go after a storm because you sit in a tide pool and you see the cool things the ocean has brought you. And uh, they were seeing there, and a big rogue wave came in and um, just swept them right over the edge of the the reef. And they were out there out there in the ocean. I, uh, there's that Stevie Smith, uh, a poet I like that wrote a poem that at one point said, "I was much farther out than you thought." And not waving, but drowning. And that's uh, that's how I see them. And I, I you know, talked to people that saw them be carried away. The, they couldn't get out there in time to save them. And, and I badly wanted to pin it on the government or on Kill Sue Lee. I, but there there was just no evidence of that. It was just a, a horribly timed and horrible tragic event.
0: Hmm yeah and that must have had an effect on 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 all of you uh, going uh, forward
1: it did it did it was very disheartening and morale just plumbing I mean, like, he was our there were there was and where were we with the case you know you know emotions aside where, who the heck was going to translate for mm-hmm. us who yeah. was our name plaintiff now yeah
0: <laughs> uh, and at some point i mean this had an effect on you it had an effect on everyone uh as, as the as this case dragged on and uh, went through its ups and downs and i think the, the the workers that were involved in this they they said is this yeah. worth it to you know yeah. should we just drop this
1: they did i mean i think they missed their moms i missed my mom and my sister i just wanted to get the sam hill off that that island and so did they they weren't being paid they late as the case progressed they um you know eventually we put the the factory into receivership but they they were trapped they did. That one of the brightest spots, though, Tom. I do need to point out is the. Safe, well, Krista called them safe houses. Um, there was a, you know, the, the population of Samoans there on the island. A number of them, a huge number, took the workers under their wing. The workers would stand out store outside of stores, with a piece of paper saying, "Can I iron your clothes? Can I tend your kids? Can I rake your leaves?" In return for some food, and the Samoans took them in. And so, so many of the clients and the workers did have these little safe homes that, when the bad things happened, rather than going back to the compound, they would scatter to them. So that was an extraordinary bright spot there. Mm-hmm.
0: And of course, this is a matter of, of record. You'll have to read the book for the the dramatic ins and outs. But uh, <laughs> you you were eventually successful.
1: We well, we were, but we were we were we were successful. Um, it, ultimately, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. We went to trial. The trial took five weeks. It was the longest trial then in the history of American Samoa. I mean, you know, I had closed for about a week in court. Okay, it was just dire all around. So we finally got through the um, hearing or the trial, and the judges took it under advisement. So we didn't get a judgment until April of 2002. So I was well back here in Utah by Mm -hmm. that time. But in the interim, we tried to get the ladies to go back to Vietnam because they they were at loose ends. There was nothing that they could do. Typically what happens is when you or I or another person goes to American Samoa, we have to post a bond. So if we do something bad and the company or the country has to send us home, they have the money. So Kil Su Lee, when he brought those 300 workers over, was supposed to have paid a bond equal to their return fare. Somehow someone in the government cut him a deal, and he only had to pay a total of $10,000 so when we got a ruling by the court saying, yes, they could go back to Vietnam, and we turned to Dai Wuxin and said, cough up the money for their fares, there was no money. So it just was direness, you know, piled on, on, on Ill, Ill ill luck. By the time we finished the trial, I had no idea where the ladies were going to go, none. Uh, they were stuck there. And in the night, the FBI and our avenging angels, Susan Lee, Susan Lynn French and Robert Musi who are Department of Justice prosecutors, came in and asked if they could meet with our clients. We said yes, of course. We handed them the facts of our case, everything we had with our client's permission we had turned over, and they granted them visas into the United States. It was unbelievable. So, they were, so most of the workers got to come into the United States, then applied for the T visa, and then brought their families over. It is the coolest end of the story. Mm. Tom, one of my... Still, dear clients, just voted in her first election last year. Quinn, oh, Quinn, the woman who was horrendously injured in the riot, has now opened um, her own hair salon in Hawaii. I mean, they're doing well. They're having lives. It it ended well, and and even though we did prevail in the civil suit, Kilsu Lee and the American er, and the Vietnamese government have never paid. We got a judgment for three and a half million dollars jointly and severally against Kilsu Lee and those two companies. And they will not pay. No one will pay. So my clients mm. are still owed just a, a huge, a huge judgment. And
0: it may never get that.
1: It may never get that. But that's one of the reasons that you know I've agitated. I, you know, people in Congress don't know me. I'm just some little, you know, crazy-sounding Puerto Rican girl from Utah. And I need. I thought, well, this book. Maybe if we can get the book out, that people will. In Vietnam will recognize that this injustice has been done. They have to make good on this. They have to realize that they need to take a stance against human rights violations. So that's what I'm really hoping from this.
0: Um, We're going to take another break. When we come back, um, I'm I'm going to talk, uh, maybe uh, take it more broadly, more generally. Uh, One of the quotes near the end of the book from Virginia Sudbury, it amazes me that this was one of the first cases of its kind in recent history. We'll talk about the ongoing uh, case of uh, slavery and human trafficking, um, which continues, unfortunately, uh, despite uh, some successful cases like this. We'll continue our discussion following this break.
1: This week in This American Life, people always told Louis Ortiz that he looked like Barack Obama, and he started to believe them. So one day he put on a suit, went to a Yankees game. Before you know it,
0: jumbotron. And people start going nuts. And then people were bringing me their babies. Like, can I get a picture? It was just crazy. What it's like to be Barack Obama if you're not Barack Obama This week.
1: Mornings at 3 and 2 p.m. on Sunday. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by Colgan Water of Cache Valley, family-owned and operated for more than 62 years, providing on-demand high-purity bottled water for cooking and drinking. Hey Colgan Man, service from the man in blue. Online at logan.colganman.com.
0: I'm Tom Williams. You're listening to Access Utah. We are talking with Virginia Sudbury, who practices law in Salt Lake City now. Uh, but she tells a story, fascinating story, uh, of her time in American Samoa. And it's called Sweatshops in Paradise, a true story of slavery in modern America. We have Virginia Sudbury with us for another 10 minutes. And you're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. By the way... Um, I was curious about Steve and Beaver Dam's uh, reference to Jack <laughs> Abramoff, so I, I googled. I just googled Diwusa and Abramoff. This came up from the Daily Kos. Uh, the headline: Caution Abramoff co-conspirators to testify at Senate CNMI hearing. CNMI referring to the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands, where, uh, according to this article, there's uh, there are continuing uh, problems with, uh, or at that time at least, uh, human trafficking, sweatshops, etc., etc. So, um, probably has to do with uh, with um, you know the problems that Mr. Abramoff got in trouble with, which was lobbying. <laughs> So, in any any case, you can just uh, Google Abr- Abramoff and De Wussa. You'll you'll get some information to come up for you. Um, th- talk about the rest of the story. Many of these ladies were able to come to the United States. Many of them doing well, uh, sure. but the ones the ones back in Vietnam not so well. You you say yeah. you you get, I guess, to 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 this day some some heartbreaking uh, messages from them.
1: Yeah, they, they've they've trailed off in the past few years, but they were heartbreaking because when they go back there, they're now. You know, burdened by the knowledge that they were involved in this sweat in the sweatshop case, they sued the, essentially the government of Vietnam, and now and, and embarrassed the heck out of their families, lost the financial investments that their families had made, and now, by the way, could they have a job? So they um, they really are in dire straits, and I think we forget that that it is a different, as small as it is compared to the United States, it's a very different environment there that they don't have the attention to human rights that we do now they are in the human rights watch list and their status waivers given the whatever year um and investigations have been done by by our department of justice but they still are on that watch list as, I, as far as i know and uh certainly certainly need to step up and, and make this good make this right
0: also we should point out that uh, the federal government did go after Kil Sue lee yes uh, in a criminal case
1: it was thrilling. That was the coolest thing because remember I said he was, you know, Kilsley was Teflon. And I remember he would smirk and I just, you know, Krista was better at this than me, but you know, I just, I couldn't even shake the man's hand. I just want I little I just wanted to slap him. He was so impervious and so um cloying and smarmy and and wrong. And every single time we left the court, he was always being his obsequious self. And never got that smirk off his face until he, until the Department of the FBI came in with Susan and Robert, and they arrested him. And I remember the picture in the paper. He just looked, he just looked shocked. Like, well, the jig, the jig is finally up. And uh, he went to federal um, prison in Hawaii. The government of American Samoa. This is a curious thing. They they actually challenged the United States's United States arrest of Kilsu Lee. Because they were insulted that the AG had not consulted with American Samoa with the governor prior to arresting him, so that went nowhere. But there was, they were even mad at the United States government for arresting somebody on American soil mm. there.
0: And uh, how are things then in American Samoa now? Have they made reforms?
1: You know, um, I have my guesses. I still, some of my dearest friends in the world live there. Um, I left, and I intend never to go back there again. It is—I think things change, but I think in a culture that small, there are 65,000 people on that island, Tom, and the island is 17 miles long and five miles wide. And most of the population lives on the rings, on the edges, because of the steepness of the mountains. It's—it's—it's it's, it's an inculcated cultural um, behaviors that go on there that that maybe can't break out of that notion of. Of corruption, or of favoritism, or, or even more, you know, more important, of loyalty. Hmm. You know, you're loyal to your family. Loyalty in American Samoa takes it, it trumps truth, hmm. and but, that's the hard part. By the
0: way, parenthetically, um, it, the the women who would come in seeking a divorce in in your yes. office ha- had a common refrain. What was that?
1: That was it, like, well, I can't get a divorce without my husband, right? And of course, I whip out my little. Start drawing again, but that was a common thing because you are own. In fact, at the time we were there, the the, the word for woman for woman was a possessive word. It was it, it belonging to the husband because you weren't your own person. You were you were literally something underneath the guise of something else, someone else. And they were amazed. I would say, no, you can get divorced, and they would say, but I need his permission. No, you don't. But he he makes money, so if he makes money, that means he gets the kids, right? No, no, that's not how this works. So it was really, it, interestingly enough, and somewhat dismally, when we first started, um, when we opened UNAI, which is the first legal services corporation ever in the territory, we started that, um, the, gov- the churches got mad at me because they thought I was divorcing people. And hmm. so there was, there was stuff I never saw coming. I mean, I never saw those attitudes there ever, hmm. or here ever. And so they were, they were somewhat shocking to me.
0: Well, the case of the there was a, a Garment Factory that uh, had a, a, mix, an out, a good outcome, uh, yeah. you know, the, the women maybe will never receive the money, but there were there were some a judgment in your favor, uh, yeah. Mr. Lee went to jail, uh, but this is unusual, is it not? Uh, all, all over the world, human trafficking, uh, modern slavery, it goes on unpunished.
1: It does, and I think it's unpunished because um and, and this is interesting. I've been speaking at some conferences of late, and tying tying it into the economic boost is the most difficult part, like like we said earlier like i I don't want to pay forty dollars for a plate of sushi, so I find the cheapest place, and maybe that place is run by a you know people that have brought their family in those Those workers are not going to rat out their family they're not going to say yeah they have my passport and i i'm confined they're not going to do that so you've got layers of um of i i guess complacency or you know tacit acceptance by the workers themselves because here they are they're making something they're making some money and then when you get into a larger larger more global aspect of it the money, obviously, that they're generating is going to these, you know, bigger corporations and these controllers of, um, of where to send the workers and where to get them employed and 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 making again the all important profit. But I, we see that in migrant, fe- and if you can't speak the language, how, where are you going to go? Where are you going to find somebody to help you?
0: So, what is needed? Stronger laws, uh, better enforcement. What? Uh,
1: you know, I I think that what we need is more knowledge. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about that how do you how do we reach a a perhaps a, a family of migrant workers in downstate Utah? How do we reach um, workers in a, you know a, a, you know nail salons in in Logan, um, maybe billboard, Facebook, Twitter, using the social media, maybe getting the word out that, golly, this isn't how you have to live, but you you have that coin, that that civil rights coin in your pocket. And the only way you're going to be able to use it and spend it is if you take it out of your pocket, and waggle it around at people and say, "Look, I have rights." But I think that I think that roots in in education and empowerment, Tom. And I don't know, I don't know how you'd start that.
0: What about uh, economically? We're we're all involved in the worldwide economy, and part of this, mm-hmm. as you point out, is uh, you know human trafficking is a part of, of some of the products that we uh, yeah. in our fields, in our cities, possibly where you get the pedicure. Is what you said? Yeah.
1: It is, and I don't know do we do we stop i mean do i i and and you know, I like to think, well, I would never you know you know go to a place that that does you know that employs people like that, and I have in fact stopped going to the one sushi bar I used to go to, but i you know where how do I know if I can go into a store and see made in America on a piece of clothing i'm I'm patting myself on the back that I'm being socially and politically diligent in what I buy. But that's not even true. I, I think it's transparency and education. Like the gentleman that outed um, the Apple thing some time ago, I'm not sure where that went, but you know maybe that's an example of it. We want cheap phones. We want cheap stuff. We just don't know how they get cheap.
0: Hmm. We'll leave it there. Out of time, we've been talking with Virginia Sudbury. She's practicing law now in Utah, but uh, she had a very interesting experience in American Samoa. The book is Sweatshops in Paradise, A True Story of Slavery in Modern America. Virginia Sudbury, pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you, Mr. Tom. Have a great day.
0: You too. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we are going to talk with uh, Steph Davis, who uh, lives in Moab. Uh, she uh, is a superstar in the climbing community has ascended some of the world's most awe-inspiring peaks, but when her husband made a controversial climb in a national park, uh, the media fallout and uh, the toll it took on her marriage suddenly left her without a partner, career, and a source of income or a purpose. And so in the company of her beloved dog, Fletch, Uh, She set off in a search for new identity and discovered skydiving. Her memoir is Learning to Fly, an uncommon memoir of human flight, unexpected love, and one amazing dog. Steph Davis, my guest tomorrow on the program. For producers Addison Pace and Danny Hayes, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today.